And this quote from Our Town kind of sums up to me not only what our town is about, but what my work's about. She has died young, and she's in the graveyard with the other dead members of Grover's Corners, and she's been granted one day alive again, where she is fully um, welcomed into the cemetery, get one day to go back, and she picks a somewhat inconsequential day. It gets more and more painful as she's there because of this realization. This is the line, oh earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And that is what our town is about, celebrating every moment, not just the big moments that we all think are going to make our life so great, every moment. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Spotify, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before welcoming today's guest, here's what I've recently read and recommend. There's more detail on my website, www.bookroomsinthewild.com. The Covenant of Water by Abraham Verghese. Just as Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese introduced me to Ethiopia, The Covenant of Water introduced me to southwestern India. I previously knew nothing about either region. Each book captures the time and the essence of its geographic location. And each introduces us to multiple, fully developed, vivid, and for the most part, appealing characters. I loved Cutting for Stone and The Covenant of Water, a compelling multi-generational tale told over the course of a century is also really great. Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America by Heather Cox Richardson. The state of the nation is perilous. And as I read Democracy Awakening, I was reminded of several other texts that offered a similar critical perspective. A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, These Truths, A History of the United States by Jill Lepore, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism by Anne Applebaum, and The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court by Jeffrey Tubin. Perilous indeed. Less perilous during the 1940s is the New York City described by E.B. White in his wonderful essays in Here is New York a lovely book written in 1949. White, who wrote for The New Yorker for over 50 years, offers his reflections on and appreciation for the New York City of the 1940s, and many of his observations are timeless. And then I read two books that we'll discuss in a moment, written by my guest today. And it's a delight to have my Hudson Valley neighbor and friend, Elizabeth Lesser, with me on the podcast. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth is the co-founder of Omega Institute, which is internationally recognized for its wellness, spirituality, creativity, and social change workshops and conferences. Elizabeth is also the author of several best-selling books, including 
Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the Human Story Changes. Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. And Marrow, Love, Loss, and What Matters Most. Elizabeth is one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a collection of leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. And Elizabeth has given two terrific TED Talks. One is called Take the Other to Lunch, which reminded me of my friend Dylan Marin's podcast with a similar theme. Dylan's podcast is called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Both are valiant, civilized efforts at mutual understanding and moving forward. When our friend Perry Beekman introduced me to Elizabeth about two years ago, Perry mentioned that Elizabeth was a New York Times bestselling author, and he said, or insisted, that I should have Elizabeth on the podcast. I googled Elizabeth's books and thought they looked interesting, but they appeared to be some combination of self-helpy and spiritual. Not my usual cup of tea. However, as I got to know Elizabeth and we discussed a number of other books, I began to re-examine my prejudices. I recently read two of Elizabeth's books, Broken Open and Marrow. These are beautiful books that share a wide range of personal stories, all truly compelling and in many instances heartbreaking. The most beautiful and compelling of all is the life and death story of the bone marrow transplant and, as you describe it, the soul marrow transplant that you and your sister Maggie went through together and which enabled you both to put aside your differences, heal from past hurts, and get on with living and loving. You describe Broken Open as a book about finding protection and blessings in the broken moments of our lives. It's all that and more. As a parent and a grandparent, I particularly loved your observations in Broken Open about parents and children and about unconditional love. And I've recently shared with my pregnant daughter-in-law and my daughter-in-law who recently became a mom the stories from when you were a midwife. <laughs> they were all really great. When you and I considered doing a podcast discussion, we thought it would be fun to discuss Ann Patchett's new book, Tom Lake, which a number of our friends were reading. And if you're discussing Tom Lake, you really should also discuss Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which was Patchett's inspiration for her new book. I love Tom Lake and Our Town, and when I read your books, I saw several commonalities. I'd love it if we could start with you discussing your background and your journey, Omega, and the books you've written, and then let's discuss whether you also see common themes in your books and in our town in Tom Lake. Sound good? Sounds fun. <laughs> so this sound fun. So um, you're as interesting as any of these books, so let's start by you describing your background and your journey that led you up to founding Omega. Okay, so first of all... Um you have to remember, I started Omega when I was 22 years old wow. with, with my uh, then husband. So uh, there wasn't really that much history before then, except my childhood, which <laughs> I'm happy to talk about, because it does have something to do with the founding of Omega, which is that I was raised in a completely non-religious family. Both my parents were actively alienated from their religion of their youth. My father had been raised in a very traditional Jewish family. My mother's family were all involved in Christian science and very involved. Her father was a minister. 
They weren't ever allowed to use doctors. It, it was a very kind of rigid spiritual experience my mother had, and she hated it. She was very much an intellectual, very uh, political, and they both happily stepped away from religion and raised their four daughters in a religion-free zone. Uh, and we had, were a very intellectual, politically oriented family. And I just was born with this hankering for anything mystical or poetic or spiritual. I just longed to experience something other than what, what appeared before me. And I wanted to go to church, temple. I didn't care what, anything. My family thought I was crazy. I would tail my Catholic neighbors to mass. I longed to go into like the confessional booth. It all seemed so like spiritually romantic to me. And when I got to college, I got all involved in SDS and the the current radical politics of the day. This was at Columbia and Barnard? Yes, at Columbia University in 1970 is when I entered. And it was the height of the anti-war and oh, civil yes. rights and feminist. And of course, from my childhood, like that's just where I, the stream I was in, I just sort of entered. But it got very... Uh, violent very quickly. Yes. And I felt this tension in me that I've never stopped feeling. The part of me that's like an activist type, and the part of me, what I made up the word innervist, which is someone who takes the inner life very seriously, as seriously as an activist takes an life. An innervist. And so that, that part of me was really... You know, you at when you're 19 years old, you're really trying to find your identity. And that was the time in our history when, American history, when all the gurus were washing up on the shores of America. And I was like, yeah, I want one of them. <laughs> it's wonderful. These are my people. <laughs> or at least the people of that other part of me that I've never really gotten to explore and I got involved with a spiritual teacher and a path and I moved to California and I just did that whole thing. And eventually this teacher that I had found had this idea to start an education center for people who maybe didn't want to go all the way into a spiritual path or a psychological healing path, but were suffering because human beings suffer. And was it this teacher who led you to create Omega? But yes. you were, and you were in California. Um, no, by then we had moved back east. My ex-husband and I, I met him when I was at Columbia. He was in medical school. And we moved to California to be with this teacher. He finished his internship there. And then this teacher got the idea that California was going to either fall into the sea or burn up. He was somewhat prescient. Yes, he um, <laughs> And we looked for a place to have a commune. It was the 1970s, so that's yeah. what you did. If you were a card-carrying hippie, That's you formed a commune. <laughs> so we went, we found this old Shaker village in the Berkshires that were for sale. Bought it by pooling our money together, and we couple of hundred of us kids, his students, moved into these buildings. What was the reaction of your parents? My parents thought it was kind of cool. Oh, cool. They thought just the commune part, because my mother sort of was a 
communist type. <laughs> and my father was a real, by then they had moved to Vermont. He was like a real back to the lander type. So they thought that part, the spiritual part, they rolled their eyes. Their eyes just rolled in their head about much of what I did. My in-laws, my mother-in-law said to me one day, you people are setting hygiene back 50 years, <laughs> <laughs> which we were. <laughs> So your in-laws who brought up their son to be a doctor was now living on who he and you were now married and living on a commune. Yeah. And he, our teacher, put him in charge of the community, a very entrepreneurial, brilliant man. And then he put me and him in charge of this. He thought most people don't want to live communally, but we're learning so much here. Because we would have all these guests come in who were changing the way we ate. You know, like, oh, it was big news back then. What you eat contributes to your state of mind. Like, this was not something in the zeitgeist. But suddenly it was starting to be, you know, like early health food and yeah. things like that. Or people, uh, therapists who, you know, it used to be you went to a therapist because you were like mentally ill out of your mind. But now... You know, some of the books were starting to talk about it. And so all these different schools of therapy and Jungian work and those guests would come and then like exercise and working out and oh, Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, people from Islamic faiths and Buddhists, Hindus, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. This was all new and burgeoning. And we would have all these people come to the commune and he thought, okay, most people aren't going to live like this. We probably won't live like this much longer, but people want to learn how to alleviate suffering in all its multitudinous forms, body, mind, heart, soul. And so he had the idea to start a school that he named Omega. So what was his name and why did he choose the name Omega? His name was, he died, uh, 15 years ago. His name was Pir Vilayat Inayat Khan. He was a Sufi teacher, Sufism being the mystical dimension of Islam. And he chose the name Omega from the writings of the Catholic mystic intellectual Tehard de Chardin. I don't know how many of our listeners know that name, Tehard de Chardin. He was a um, Catholic priest from France. He was a Parisian intellectual. He had studied um, paleontology in college and then become a priest. And he believed in evolution. So the, um, the powers that be in the Vatican were afraid of him because his writings were very popular. So they kept banishing him. They banished him to China. He helped discover the Peking man, one of the first discoveries in right. paleontology. They banished him to Africa they banished him. His final banishment was to Poughkeepsie, New York. <laughs> That's real banishment. That was real banishment for him. And he's actually buried just a few miles down the road from the campus that we eventually bought for Omega. Total one of those Amazing. winks from God, if you use that language, just like, yeah, this is the right place to be. And so he had this idea called the Omega Point. In his idea of evolution, everything is evolving. You're evolving. You're growing and changing and moving toward 
a more unified idea of life and yourself. But the whole universe is evolving towards something good, something wise. Even God in his mind was evolving, which was why he was banished to Poughkeepsie, New York, because that didn't sit well with the Pope. Um, and But our teacher thought that's what this institute should be about, the way everything is converging together toward understanding. And was he involved in the founding of Omega, or he just had the idea? He... he he had lots of ideas. He was a Renaissance man. He was a true polymath. He was knew everything, and he had fought in World War II, and for the French, for the British, actually, because they escaped from Paris, where he had, yeah. was raised. So by the time he got to America, in all these like slovenly hippie kids, he was like. You sit up straight when you meditate, you wear nice clothes, you continue to be educated, you learn classical music, you, he, he... What a great influence. He was. He was really my real college education in everything. So he was involved in the beginning, but he had so many things going on that eventually he put me and my ex-husband in charge of it. And then we didn't want to live communally anymore. So we took it and we found this old kids camp in the Hudson Valley, near where Tehard de Chardin is buried. And uh, that was the real beginning of Omega as what it's like today. And by the time you founded Omega, you say, I think you said you were 22? In the very first time. And we, I mean, when we first started, it was just a bunch of workshops and a mimeographed little catalog. Right. But that, that's quite courageous at that age, with no background in... I gather an organization, you haven't described that. No, no. But you had the background in the substance, in, in, in the, learn, the, the desire to create a learning environment. Right. It was wonderful. So um, the books I've mentioned that I've read, so I mentioned I read and loved Broken Open and Marrow. And when I saw Cassandra, I thought this too did not appear to be appealing. But then you wrote a note about how, what the book is about more broadly, which I was intrigued by. So you talked about how stories get trapped in a culture's consciousness and become reality. You talked about looking at stories that drive culture, dismantling them, and asking ourselves if we still want to live in the old storylines. And I found that fascinating, and I look forward to reading Cassandra. But coming back to Broken Open, which I loved, describe, what, if you would, what, what you mean by Broken Open. Well... I can't imagine anyone who's listening hasn't had moments in, in their lives when they feel broken, like you're sick, you get divorced, your kid isn't doing well, you lose your job. These are moments where the story of your life suddenly gets broken. Like, oh, I thought I'd be married my whole life. Who am I now without that? I thought I'd always work for that company. I thought my kid was going, never going to get into drugs. All the things that happened to us, those are, are like choice points. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And in fact, when you're in the middle of it, if you say to someone, this is your opportunity to choose growth over freaking out, you might get punched, you know, like that, that's... But eventually, when you look back, you think, wow, 
before my cancer diagnosis, I kind of was so afraid all the time and I, I wasn't living every moment of life or before my divorce, I didn't know who I was. I didn't think I was worth it. All the things that you only find out. So you have a choice in difficult moments. You can either break down, get blameful, bitter, blame it on everybody else, never take responsibility for your part in it, or you can use it as a way to um, be a more authentic person, less afraid, less bullshitty, more in your life. And it's a, it's a powerful uh, initiation. It's like the old stories, the, the hero's journey, all the great stories we love, whether it's the Greek myths or the Bible or our town or Tom Lake. They're usually about one moment in somebody's life where they have to leave what they knew was safe and get the balls to go out there and redefine who they are. And by broken open, I mean you're still broken open to a new life. So that that's very helpful, that last point, because I was thinking about situations, and I think you mentioned this in the book, uh, the loss of a child. Mm, the worst. Uh, the worst. And I was thinking about how could anyone ever get over that? But what you just said is very helpful. You're still broken, but you're still alive. And now you have a choice. And then when the next breaking happens, because it doesn't just happen once, and we're all heading toward the final big moment where it the happens. big, big loss happens, we start to lose people we love, and then we're going to lose our own life. If the smaller losses in life are approached with some degree of fearlessness and openness and not clenching tight and saying no and refusing to move with the river, the bigger ones become easier and they become more like adventures. Yeah, that's very helpful. On moving with the river, when I read that part, I thought for sure you were going to swim upstream. <laughs> I thought you were going to, because of your, Interesting. because of your rebellious background, <laughs> I thought for sure, but, but I, I did get why you need to swim with the river, but that, that's what I thought. Yeah. I think you're talking about when I say like, when you get to the rapids in a river, these moments we're talking about, if you start trying to swim against the current, you're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to tread water and get exhausted and pissed off. Yeah, good. Get on your back. And you say, take me where you're going. It doesn't mean you turn into some sort of enlightened, you know, navel gazer. It just means you, you say yes to reality. Yeah. And authenticity. Then when you talked about uh, clenching, of course, I thought of what you talked about in your midwifery, mm -hmm. which I couldn't repeat. But, but I did, as I said, I sent it to my pregnant daughter. And it's a great metaphor. Yeah. For anyone who's had a kid or watched a kid being born, you know, when, when I was helping women have babies, the natural thing that happens when you feel something really painful, like let's say a fist is coming toward your face or the, per, the, the shot is about to go into your arm, you clench, you, you move away. It's a, it's a natural biological urge to get away from the pain. The weird thing with labor is that if you clench, you slow down the labor. It's obvious. It's like the muscles of the uterus and the cervix need to open, open, open. 
And if you clench, they shut, 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 and it's and you prolong labor and it's more painful. If you can open when things are difficult and painful in labor, the baby comes sooner. You get the gift. And and that is an apt metaphor for breaking open. If you can relax and stay open when things are hard, it's like almost like magic. It becomes less hard. That's wonderful. Now, Marrow, lovely and heartbreaking at the same time. What inspired you to tell this difficult story? Well, it's the story of my sister. I have three sisters and she was just 18 months younger than me. And we're very close, but kind of different from each other. And I was the only sibling who matched as her bone marrow potential graft siblings are the most likely, not children, not parents, siblings. And I matched, it's called 10 for 10, perfect match. All of our DNA markers lined up. There was no question I was going to be a bone marrow donor. And when that happened, she was a nurse practitioner in a very uh, tough Vermont, like uh, just a wonderful, wonderful artist and nurse and outdoors woman. And um, she had been writing some stories about being a nurse practitioner in rural Vermont. And she always wanted to write them down. And I was sort of helping her. And then when she got sick, I was like, let's, let's write what this is for us. Let's write this down. And she was very into it. She wanted me to keep writing. And some of her writing is in the book. Right. Her field notes. They're wonderful. And, and so this was, so the field notes are her writing. Is that what you worked on with her? Yeah. And then you, you wrote around the field notes. Yeah. As I said, it's, it's, it's warm and engaging, but it's also ultimately heartbreaking. Uh, but there's a lot to be learned from it. And you talk, I, I think in both books, um, about authenticity. And you talk about ADD. Talk about the ADD that you refer to. Yeah. I, you know, we all know it. AD, attention deficit disorder, but I used it to describe what I call authenticity deficit disorder, which we all suffer from. It's not some uh, unusual thing. You grow up, your parents say, why can't you be like your cousin Joey? Or your teachers say, calm down. Everybody else is sitting quietly or you don't look like the way you think you should look. And culture tells us to be all sorts of things. And we never really get to say, yeah, but who am I? And, and can I just be that? And I, can I be it with this? You know, it's hard. It's hard to be authentic in that you have to be both really strong in your sense of self, somewhat fearless to be different, but at the same time, not an egoic asshole where you're just like, I'm me, get out of the way. So it's a, it's, a, it's a path. It's a work in progress. I want to be my body, my emotional self, my brain, my face. And I want to fit in, of course, because that's the joy of life, doing it together. And I would say that, that if somebody asked me, what's the spiritual path? Th- that to me is it. How do I get over ADD? And so one of Maggie's field notes um, she talks about the big trick and she says the big trick being who I am, just being who I am 
That's the big trick. The more I stopped trying to be a perfect little human for everybody else, the more I stopped expecting other people to be perfect, the more I trusted myself, the more I trusted other people. The more I let myself be me, the better things got between me and other people. Like with you, Liz. I want to tell my kids this. I want to tell them not to care so much about what other people think, not to be afraid of saying what they want, what they need. I want to say, don't dim your light. Don't live small. You're not damaged goods. You don't need to be fixed. Just be who you are, because that's what the people who really matter want anyway, the truth of who you are. So I I thought that was a beautiful explanation of what it meant to be authentic. Yeah, she, what she said. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, on Tom Lake and our town. So as I said, I I saw a number of commonalities. And, but let me just say, so our town, uh, when I sum it up, I said, it's about the preciousness of life and community. And I refer to it as timeless, important, moving, and, and certainly a classic. And then Ann Patchett, who wrote Tom Lake, um, wanted nothing but to write about our town. And uh, Patchett said she wanted to write about a woman who got to the end of her life and was thinking about when she played Emily in our town in high school. And then she said, I've been really obsessed with our town since I was in high school. And it's a play that I've read over and over again and have throughout my life and just wanted to write about our town. Our town becomes more and more relevant the closer we get to our own death. Man. And I thought you might want to comment on some of that and particularly how, what the commonalities are with your own work. Well, when you and I were discovered, we were both reading Tom Lake and loved our town. And we live in a little town and it's somewhat like our town. Not, uh, I think Grover's Corners is a little less wild and woolly than our town, <laughs> but all little towns are the same. Probably big cities too. Bunch of people working out their lives together. When when I d- discovered that we both loved it, I just like immediately like okay, Howard's my best friend, and um, <laughs> because my mother was obsessed with our town, she quoted it to us all the time. We saw it many times. In fact, the last thing I went to with my mother before she got sick was Paul Newman in Our wow. Town on Broadway. And this quote from Our Town kind of sums up to me not only what our town is about, but what my work's about. And it's, it's, it's Emily is saying this. She has died, and I'm not giving anything away, but maybe no, I am. Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> she, she has died young, and she's in the graveyard with the other dead members of Grover's Corners. And, and she's been granted one day alive again before she is fully um, welcomed into the cemetery. You get one day to go back. And she picks a somewhat inconsequential day. And it gets more and more painful as she's there because of this realization. This is the line, oh, earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And that is what our town is about. Celebrating every moment, not just the big moments that we all think are going to make our life so great, 
every moment sitting here with you in your beautiful home and chatting or taking a walk or just waking up and saying, oh my God, I'm still alive. I can breathe. This is amazing. Of course, we can't go around all the time like that. We wouldn't get anything done, but we miss so many moments in life because we're straining I, w- I think I would like to get that, what those people have. And meanwhile, they're thinking, I want what she has. And like, and what we have is, is I know it's very like cliche, it's this moment. Right. And that's what Tom Lake is about to me also, because it takes place during the pandemic and everything has stopped. So the, this family only has each other and they haven't been together in a long time. They only have their cherry orchard and they're picking their cherries and they only have their stories and they tell each other stories and it sort of reduces what we value down to community, love, truth, um, beauty, and, and just everyday life. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. There are two parts in, I think it's from Broken Open, I'm fairly certain it is, where you you quote from two friends of yours, one Ellen, who was about to die, and she said to you, she, it's, it's, it's as if her name really was Emily. She said, if only people realized what they had in life, they would not be able to contain their joy. And your friend uh, Alex Gray, a painter, unusually brought his NYU drawing class students to a city morgue to study cadavers. And he said, death heightens our appreciation of, of every moment. Death heightens our appreciation of every moment we are alive and calls out to us. Soon you will die. What will you do with your life? What have you not done yet that you want to do? And I think the introspection is so important. And reading a book like Our Town, uh, I, I think, is so meaningful. A lot of times people say to me, oh, I don't read fiction because you can't learn anything from fiction. <laughs> it's, it's astounding. Astounding. The comparison between Our Little Town and Grover's Corner. So in your book, you say, I live in a small town. Friends who live in cities are horrified by the way everyone seems to know everyone else's business here. And I wouldn't say I'm horrified. <laughs> Maybe I'm amused. It's endearing. It's beyond endearing. Yeah, it's, it, you know, we have another friend who walks with us on the road where you live and we all run into each other a lot. And he's recently moved here from a bigger place and he, and and he is horrified. It's like, how did you know that? And like, because we live in Grover's Corners. Corners. (laughs) So there are a number of other overlaps, um, less consequential, I think, but your sister Maggie was married to her high school sweetheart as was the the boy next door, as was Emily. Um, Among the sisters in Tom Lake, the oldest, Emily, was the fiery one. Uh, and Emily's mother, Laura, explained how their first daughter was named after Emily in our town. We named our daughter for the plucky girl in the first act, the smartest girl in her class. And that's the way you describe yourself in um, Marrow. You, just, you say you're the one who excelled in school and stood up to your father's authority. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you may be Emily... In Tom Lake, as well as Emily in our town. Maybe. I, Maybe. You'd have to ask my sisters. Yeah, well. They might have something else to say. <laughs> they probably would. <laughs> so what, what other things would you like to leave us with? I think um, the experience of reading your books in advance of our discussion was uh, 
was wonderful. And I thank I you. I know for that. what I want to ask you. Yeah. If that's okay. Yeah, please. So you said when we started and when our our friend said, Oh, you really should have Elizabeth on podcast. And you were like, well, I don't read those self-help spiritual books. So why? Probably the 24 hours in a day rule. Um, why? I don't know why. So I, I shouldn't say I don't read them. I haven't read them. I know. Um, I'm asking because like often very smart people like you, intellectually curious people like you who've lived such an interesting, good, generous life and you have a family and all the things you are, are like allergic to anything self-helpy. And since it's been my whole life and I consider myself, you know, engaged and intellectual, intellectual, intellectually curious I've, and I've never, I've never understood why there's this like allergy to it as if, not me, I don't read those things. Well, it's interesting as you were talking about uh, the seventies and I don't remember if you used the term psychiatric help, but, but the, my parents, I'll say my mother in particular was allergic to any suggestion. I I don't, I don't remember if anybody thought I needed to see a psychiatrist, but I remember the, the attitude Right. Of, uh, you know, that's not for us, as it were. Mm-hmm. So may- maybe that's left yeah, over. I think so. I think so. Because I'm often struck by people proudly say, yeah, I work out at the gym three times a week to like, you know, improve my body, stay healthy. But people are hidden about, yeah, I go to therapy once a week. When all it is to me is uh, getting help to be more introspective, yes. Yes, generous, yes. kind, open. And I've always, I've just been on this mission to sort of normalize it and actually bring pride yes. to the work on the self. I feel as if younger people do not have the same allergy I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Either to, pardon me, the self-helpy helpy part of it or to the spiritual part of it. And on the spiritual part of it, again, what you said in your books was very appealing. It was not presented as religious. It was presented as spiritual and intellectual searching. And it was fascinating. So I've asked a couple of people I know who are, who do a lot of meditation and um, are more spiritual than probably myself. And the reactions I've gotten when I've mentioned various names, Rumi, do I, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and uh, Rastam, Ram Das, Ra- Ram, Ram Das, Ram Das, uh, has been yes, of course, <laughs> and and how wonderful that you're reading, uh, which is wonderful. So um, you know, you, you've opened up my mind, oh. and I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, this is great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookroomsinthewild.com which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, who has designed additional swag, provides overall creative direction. Ben and Eden and Catherine provide additional inspiration and support 
And of course, Carol is my muse. Four and a half year old subway car loving Jakey remains a delight beyond words and continues to encourage the podcast. As does Jake's sweet, energetic, wisecracking, and equally delightful two and a half year old cousin, Francesca, who always likes to tell me what she's reading. Sweet baby Mila Zora Dora joined the podcast production intern class last summer, and the three grand loves are expecting additional help in the next few weeks. Thanks to the great Spotify team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. Thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookrooms-in-the-wild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.